Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live from Wisconsin, it's Play That Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hi, I'm Carrie Stevens. Hey, everybody, this is Prescott Niles. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. This is Tony Franklin here. Listening to Play That Rock and Roll. Keep This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joe Kay, and today our guest is Gary Kroger, who was a cast member and writer on Saturday Night Live from 1982 through 1985. Hi. I'm Gary Kroger. What is so wrong about that? Currently, he hosts the Gary and Kenny Show alongside Ken Seisler, who you might remember was a guest on this show just last year. Ken came on the show to talk about his experience working at MTV on the network's early years. And at the same time Ken was working over at MTV, Gary was working on Saturday Night Live. Now, I'm a huge fan of SNL. Always have been. I grew up loving the show, and one of my favorite things about the show is its rich history of musical guests. There have been some absolutely legendary performances from some of the most iconic artists in music history on that show, and the mid-80s was no exception. To name just a few, Queen, The Clash, The Kinks, John Mellencamp, Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks, Robert Plant, and Tina Turner all visited the show during Gary's time there. During this interview, we talk about his memories of some of the various artists that appeared as musical guests, what working on the show during this time was like, his absolutely spot-on impression of Bruce Springsteen, how he felt as a total Beatles maniac when Ringo Starr hosted the show, and of course, what he does now on The Gary and Kenny Show. You can watch The Gary and Kenny Show on YouTube, and you can get it as a podcast on every major podcast platform. You can also find The Gary and Kenny Show on Facebook and Twitter, at Gary Kenny Show. 
Also, if you'd like to learn more about Gary, you can check out his website, GaryHasIssues.com, in which he opines on all kinds of topics, be it showbiz or politics. Yeah, we didn't have time to get into it, but Gary also ran for Congress at some point. <laughs> so he has a lot of insight and experiences to write about, and he has put together a great deal of blog entries and stories and all that good stuff over at his website. So check that out at GaryHasIssues.com. But without further ado, here's my conversation with former cast member and writer at Saturday Night Live and current host of The Gary and Kenny Show, Gary Kroger. Some of the most famous names, I guess you would say, that were, were castmates of yours who were on the show at that time were people like Eddie Murphy, yeah. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Joe Piscopo, Billy Crystal, Harry Shearer. Christopher Marty Cass, Short. Marty Short, one of my favorites. and of course, Jim Belushi. Oh, yeah, Jim Belushi. And most yeah. importantly, Gary Kroger. <laughs> yeah, 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 I had that list. Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's interesting um, because there was no career ever to emerge from the show bigger than Eddie Murphy. Yeah. And when I got there in 82 with Julia and Brad Hall, um, Eddie's career was just about to blow up. He was the star of Saturday Night Live, but that was just the star of Saturday Night Live. 48 Hours hadn't come out yet. That came out and bam, then Trading Places, then Beverly Hills Cop. It was, holy cow, I was in the presence of a superstar, not a star, a superstar. Yeah. And even when he'd come back to do the show, you know, there was a gasp in the audience because they were in the presence of Eddie Murphy. You know, I used to always compare it to like John Wayne on the Lucy show. He'd enter the scene and the audience would applaud. It was really like that with Eddie. It's like, oh my God, it's Eddie Murphy. And then the scene would progress. Yeah, you know, and I imagine it must be sort of bittersweet. Like it was probably very much a privilege to work with somebody like that. But at the same time, when someone just sucks all of the oxygen out of the room. I mean, it's, it's tough to like stand out, you know, among, uh, you know, with what's left. Right. That's an interesting perspective because you would assume so. Okay. And yes, it is undeniable that the producers just, you know, they, they had their horse and they rode that horse and Joe Piscopo wasn't a bad, you know, placing horse himself. So you had your stars, your engine of the show, and the writers naturally wrote for them, and their sketches would naturally lead the show and be dominant. So it was very hard for the rest of us, especially the newcomers like me, Julia, and Brad, to get our piece of the pie. In fact, yeah. we, we, really, we really struggle. You mentioned Julia as one of the bigger stars, and she is one of the biggest stars in television history, but not from Saturday Night Live. You know, we really struggled together to get airtime. But at the same time, in answer to your uh, your point, for me personally, I was so in awe of Eddie Murphy. And just, I, I admired him so much. Not his stardom. I admired his talent. He had this uncanny ability to bring characters, whether they were original characters or imitations, to life on a level that belied a 19-year-old kid, and he had a confidence that gave him this magnetic appeal on stage that I was like, wow, I am so glad I get to witness this. 
two of the people that you were on the, the show with that are honestly like really big favorites for me are like Tim Kazarinski yeah. and Larry Gross. Oh, can you tell two, me about and, working with those people? Well, they, I, I don't want to compare them to parental figures, but in a way, they were parental figures. Yeah. They both, you know, Mary is a very nurturing and still is human being. Um, you know, I, I think she struggled like all of us to get airtime, you know, in the shadow of Eddie Murphy and, and Joe and, and later with Billy Crystal and Chris Guest and Marty Short. But she was always generous, always kind, always came to work, always took care of everybody. Tim Kazarinski was a was was similar in the sense that he always had an eye out for you. You know, he'd throw you something. He'd go, "Hey Kroger, I've got something for you this week." You know, he 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 was a very unselfish writer and performer, and so, and that's from their second city background, and that's what you know. We came from not second city specifically, but next door to second city with a, an ensemble that worked together. And there was another one among us, Paul Barras, who was a writer on the show when we went there. We we believed in working together, and we believed in the chemistry of, I look better if I make you look better, and vice versa. You know, it, it was sort of an egoless. There's no such thing as an egoless experience, especially in show business. That's a lie. But... <laughs> But the paradigm was get your ego out of the way and service the sketch. And the best way to service the sketch is to serve those who are on stage with you. That's so interesting to hear because, like, for someone like me, when I read the histories of Saturday Night Live and see documentaries about retrospectives and all this, the one thing that comes up and again and again is that it, it was it, for various years, maybe not your years, but it was very cutthroat and backstabby mm. and drama and it, it could get very vicious and it, was that less so in the years you were there, or did you see your fair share of it? Well, I saw my fair share of it, but it, it was under it was it was it was disguised by ambition. You know, if somebody really wanted to get something on the show and they had the ability to do it, it was any other actor be damned in a way. Um, you know, I look at Billy Crystal, I look at, at Jim Belushi, marvelous talents, but you didn't want to get in their way. Uh -huh. Not that they would not that they would hurt you. They weren't backstabbers. They yeah. were front stabbers. <laughs> now, as I dig this little hole, let me get out of it because I, I uh, they're both my friends. Absolutely. But but they had the clout. Yeah. They had the ability to get things done. And you had to just sort of step out of the way to let them do it. You know, I it, I couldn't go to Billy and say, hey, include me, include me. I just sort of hovered around and hoped that he would include me, include me. Uh, it wasn't backstabbing, but, you know, it, it's a difficult question to answer. And anybody in the history of Senate Live, if you ask that question, they're going to give a fumbling answer just like me. <laughs> because there certainly are periods of backstabbing. There's never a time when somebody isn't crying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it, And it's because... The show's important to you. As far as you know, it's your career. It's the launching pad. It might be the extent of your career. It's so important to you that to be part of it is very, very important. And when you feel like you got cut out for whatever reason, time or they didn't get enough laughs or lack of um, ambition or whatever it took to get your sketch on, 
it hurt. Yeah. It hurt. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. The, the main reason why I wanted to have you on the show today is because, you know, this podcast is about classic rock. Yeah. And during your time on the show, some of the biggest, most absolute legends of that genre came through those doors and played as the musical guest and one even hosted that I'm going to ask about. Um, but before we get to those individually, can you tell me a little bit about the mechanics of a musical guest coming through? When a music guest would come by, they would play in in the midpoint of the show and typically near the end. When they were on stage, what were like you and the rest of the cast typically doing during those performances? Were you drooling? Drooling. Yeah, because there's no, because it doesn't matter. I mean, first of all, you're you're absolutely right. You know, look in my first few shows, Queen. Are you kidding me, Queen? The Clash? Yep. Are you kidding me? Robert Plant, the Honey Drippers? Are you kidding me? Stevie Wonder? Pinch me? I mean, really? Titans. Titans. But even those who were sort of, you know, men at work, great. They had a hit song. Um, the Thompson Twins, great. They had a hit. Even though they aren't in the Pantheon, they were in the moment, the top acts. Right. So you were always, the, the, the booking, I believe it was Lori's acts, was booking the best talent, the best acts that were available, that wanted to do the show, or they just had a hit and they needed the exposure, or the classics like Queen. We were always trying to get something, because if you didn't like the guest host, the thinking was, you're going to like the musical guest, or vice versa. So... I'm in there. I can't think of any act that I wasn't in awe of. Heck, Duran Duran, for heaven's sakes. Oh, sure. So you um, were able to watch them, right? You weren't. You they would come on Thursday and they would run through their stuff. They'd do okay. sound checks, they'd do both. Okay. And guys like me, and when I certainly I remember Brad Hall being close by in every situation, just want to rub shoulders, hear what they chat about with the band. You know, uh, I made eye contact a couple times with. 
Freddie Mercury. And I thought, hey, I think he likes me. <laughs> I mean, it was a big deal. And when they were performing, there's no performance that you see on screen where I'm not two feet away from that camera, just grooving now with that, the audience. Yes, absolutely. Well, hey, let's let's start with Queen, because that is so crazy. That is your first ever episode of, of SNL. Uh, September 25th, 1982, and it also marks the final time Queen ever performed live in the United States. Right, and it was their only SNL performance. Right. So so tell me, any memories you have of them coming through? What was it like being around Queen? Well, I have two vivid memories. One I just told you. It's like, well, you know, and I'm not, you know, um, I'm a happily married man, let's make that very clear, but... But we had heard rumors that Freddie Mercury was gay. He, I don't believe he'd really come out yet. Oh, interesting. I don't believe he'd really come out. He, yeah. he still had sort of a butch persona in a way. But we'd heard these rumors. And so in my mind, he, he looked at me a couple of times and sized me up. And in my mind, in my fantasy mind, I think, I think Freddie Mercury thinks I'm cute. <laughs> I mean, like, let me make it clear. It's not where I went in life or anything like sure. that, but you still like the flattery. And I've saw him check me out. His eyes went up and down and I thought, hey, Freddie likes me. The other memory though, is that he developed serious laryngitis, like really bad. Now, I'm not sure what he did. It could have been a cortisone shot or something like that, but he was only maybe less than two-thirds vocal strength for that performance. Now, you listen to it, and knowing that, you might notice a few. The top is a little soft on a few things. But still, Eddie Murphy at three, or Eddie, Freddie Mercury at three quarters is still a superstar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's a gift of presence and performance and vocal technique that really I can't think of an equal. And they all went to the party afterwards, you know, Saturday Night Live always, through it, even its ups and downs, is still a, a bright, shining star in even the, the lives of these megastars. Yeah, you know, Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stones considered it a, a privilege to be on SNL. Paul McCartney, for heaven's sakes, oh, yeah. on SNL. So they hung out with us afterwards and just, you know, Clash went to the party. Yeah. Okay, well, you mentioned, let's talk about The Clash. So The Clash comes on in October. They play a song called Straight to Hell and Should I Stay or Should I Go. Should I Stay or Should I Go. Great, great song. And, you know, I, I, I wonder, you say it's, you know, that big party of SNL's history. I wonder if The Clash felt a little... Uh, inner conflict be, be given that that's so show busy and they're very punk rock, you know? Excellent question. Excellent observation. Because I made the same observation. Ah, this okay. is at the time. Yeah. This is the clash. And I, you know, uh, um, their music was the, you know, the iconoclast. Um, it was, I don't want to ever say mainstream, but it was punk gone popular. Yeah. You know, it, it got very big. And, but Joe Strummer was very clear to say, hey, I am not one of you. He had his mohawk going on, and um, it, their music was, was very clear that, hey, hey, don't, we're not commercial. Yeah. But I could tell they were thrilled to be there. 
They were thrilled to perform. They were thrilled with the attention and they showed up at the after party. The after party is the show busiest part of the whole, the whole gig. Right. If you really don't care, you don't show up at the party where everybody's drinking and telling you how great you are. Exactly. But, but I, I'm not criticizing them at all, but I was just, you know, my eyes were on Strummer because that's the image to me of The Clash, is, is Strummer, you know, looking like he doesn't care. But again, Mohawk and all, he was still a regular person. Sure. He was a person with, you know, likes to be told that it was a great show and he sounded terrific, you know. Well, parties the, are fun. I mean, I, I would almost find a band more insufferable if they were like, no, we're not going to that. We're too punk for right. that. Right. That, well, that. you know, they'd created this with the only band that matters. And, you yeah, know, yeah. They, they'd created this, Lond you know, um, London Calling. But, but again... Just about every, this is one of the things I learned in show business. Everybody is putting on an act of themselves. You know, I mean, outside of the characters that you play, you're still creating a persona that has foundational threads of who you are. But at the same time, it's a little bit of, hey, this is working. I'm going to go this way. This is working. I'm going to go this way. And the clash struck me that just a little bit because I was so surprised that they were, you could talk to him back to the, you know, he didn't say, get out of here, kid. Yeah. I got no time for you, which part of me kind of thought would be the deal. Nope, absolutely friendly guy, enjoyed to have a conversation and a cup of coffee. Wow, that's good to hear. I like that. Uh, another band that played in October of 82 is uh, one you mentioned also, Men at Work. Yeah. And they played uh, in the episode where Howard Hesman is the host. Now, yes. I read somewhere that that's, one of your favorite episodes, is that right? Well, it was because that was episode four, as I recall. Yeah. For me. Okay. And, uh, and of that season. I had a lot to do on that show. I had a lot to do. I, I did a couple of scenes with Howard. Um, and they were scenes that got some attention. Uh, Uncle Teddy's Theater or something like that. And a thing that I did called The Confession uh, that I did with Howard. And Howard, you know, comes from not the Compass Players, but... Um, I forget the name of his comedy troupe, but one of the legendary improv comedy oh, troops. Yeah. So he really was of the same mindset that some of us were there, where it was about participating with the people you're on stage with, not upstaging them. And so there was a chemistry that I immediately had with Howard. And so I really, really enjoyed that show. And I loved Men at Work. Colin Hay was just, again, a magnificently friendly guy. Yeah, and and both of those, both Men at Work and Howard came back like within a year, right? Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. there any reason why? Was there a particular reason why that they, they were brought back so quickly? I think because the shows went so well. I, I don't know what the numbers were. I was yeah. oblivious to that anyway. How many millions watched or didn't? But the shows were effortless because you had an acts that wanted to be there were thrilled to be there put in the hours they didn't go off to go do some celebrity thing they made the week run like a well-oiled machine and i remember dick ebersol being so pleased with how that first show went oh. that in a way we all became so friendly that it's like well come on back come on back quickly let's do this again 
the last one I want to ask about from your first season is this guy, Tom Petty. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They were there uh, in February 83 uh, promoting one of my favorite albums, um, Long After Dark. Uh, yeah. Playing, uh, the Waiting and Change of Heart. That was also, that was the other Hesman show. Tell me about uh, Tom Petty, you know, what, what was him and the band like? Well, uh, I'm a huge Tom Petty fan, and Tom Petty's another one of the artists who carried me through college, and so many others, you know. Um, I, I don't have a specific Tom Petty memory, except, again, he was approachable, he was kind, he put in the time, he went to the party. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that was really my, my litmus test, is do they want to hang with us after? Right. And all of my idols who did the show did. Oh, cool. They all did. Okay. So, okay, well, I have a specific Tom Petty question for you, because I don't know if you remember, he's got that song from the late 80s that mentions two of your castmates. He's got a song called Jammin' Me, and the lyrics go in part, take back Vanessa Redgrave, take back Joe Piscopo, take back <laughs> Eddie Murphy, give them all some place to go. Now, I've read that Eddie Murphy did not appreciate <laughs> uh, that song and, and gave Tom some crap about it. Did, was that, I mean, I don't know if that ever came up in conversation, but uh, did you ever hear from Piscopo? I, 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 no, I, I, I'd heard that, obviously, the song. Yeah. Um, but I had never heard any reaction to it one way or the other. Joe and I stay in touch, but I've never brought up what he thinks about Tom Petty. Sure. Um, I know that Eddie is very protective of 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 Eddie Murphy. Yeah, right. He's very protective of of his image. He's very protective of the work that he's put in. So I think he's a little sensitive. And and there was another issue, obviously, years later with um, you know, oh, D David Spade. Look, children, it's a falling star. Make a wish. And Eddie was really hurt by it. And I I took Eddie's position on there is like hey look i saved the show yeah. leave me alone i am a golden goose yeah. in this one so i, I understood really what he was shot. coming from what's that and, and spade's comment was a really cheap shot yeah it was a cheap shot yeah, yeah. um but i understand why eddie would be protective of his career you know joe has taken hits over the years particularly in the beginning because he wasn't eddie murphy I remember Larry David, I think it was, had a joke. I, today, I feel like the luckiest, luckiest man in the world, except, except, of course, of course, for Joe, Joe Piscopo. I never thought, and I love Larry David, but I never thought that was funny. I thought it was a cheap shot because yeah. Joe worked harder than anybody. And he had a vehicle to create any image, any voice, and he worked hard to perfect what he did, his timing and everything. So I felt that Joe deserved the recognition that he got and never deserved um, the criticism. Yeah. Some, no, he survived all of it. He has a happy life, big career. He plays in New Jersey and Atlantic City. He's got a radio show. He, um, he, he's a happy man, great children. But, but uh, you know, I thought he took some lumps he didn't deserve. No, I, I, I definitely hear that. How would you have felt if Tom Petty had instead saying, take back Gary Kroger, give him a... Oh, I, I would have been thrilled. <laughs> look, look, I am of the any publicity is good publicity school. Yeah, <laughs> look, if, I, if I had been worthy of being on his radar, yeah. I would have been thrilled. And I'm not lying. I sure. would have been thrilled. 
I hope that if anyone, any musicians out there cover Jam and Me, they insert your name once in a while. That <laughs> Please. <was> great. <laughs> I'm fair game. You're welcome to it. Totally. So let's go on to season two. Uh, season two opened with actually somebody, after we're done doing this interview, I'm going to go see in concert tonight. And that was John Cougar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, I'm learning these things. With, I, I don't remember the chronological order of anything. I've got my notes. Or very few shows. But yeah, yeah. You've got, you can cheat over there and look. Yeah, John Cougar. John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Still he, just Cougar, though, at the time, right? Correct. Yeah. Which is like, I wasn't around for this sort of thing. But like, can you take me back in time and like talk about how weird it was that he was known as one name and then he was like Cougar Dash Mellencamp and then like, what was going on with that? I figured that he fell into the show business trap that you've got to have a catchy name, yeah. Johnny Cougar. And then I think he realized, wait, my whole act is based on authenticity and my audience expects authenticity. I can't be Johnny Cougar. Right. And my name is Mellencamp, which there is no more Midwestern bourgeois name in the world than Mellencamp. Absolutely. But it's who he is, and I think he, he owned it at that point. For sure. Uh, do you remember uh, speaking with him or watching him perform during that week? I remember watching him perform, but I'll tell you, you know, um, like I said, I'm a happily married man, and my wife will, will you know, listen to this. Uh, but this was long before I met her. I was so hot for one of his backup singers that oh, all, I, okay. all I did was flirt with her. And I flirted with her at the party, and she never gave me the time of death. <laughs> In fact, this is the first time I've ever made that confession. Yes, he was there, great music, but I was just enamored with this backup singer. And now, in fact, if you look at the tape, I mean, I, I can't remember any of I I would know which one she was. Sure. But, you know, after... You know, being invisible to her, I never gave her another thought. That's great. We are breaking some brand <laughs> new, new ground. fresh yeah. news here today. <laughs> I love that. Um, so two musical acts that I want to talk about that played uh, within a month of each other in 83 were two members of Fleetwood Mac. Mick Fleetwood and his Mick. band, The Zoo, showed up the Zoo. and played a couple of songs. And then Stevie Nicks showed up in mm -hmm. December yeah. And that struck me as that must have been a standout performance of all the people who've come through uh, SNL and during your time there. Would you say that's about your memory as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, again, you know what it's like. You're, you're, you're in high school. You're in college. Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks, Mick Fleetwood, any, uh, Robert Plant, if you were to be. These people were so iconic. You looked at magazines, you bought their records, you listened to them until the grooves were worn out. You know, you talked about, you know, how hot Stevie Nicks was and, yeah. oh, my God, if I could only meet her. And then there they are in the flesh. And I never got over my enamored, my awe of the fact that I'm in this space now. And, you know, it was a period, and maybe this period still exists, you tell me. But a lot of the big acts of the 70s had splintered now, and they were establishing themselves with the Honey Drippers or the Zoo or uh, as solo artists with a new act. And almost all of them at some point got back to the old act, too. Yeah. But at this period of the 80s, there was a lot of experimenting with new acts. Now, that didn't diminish the act to me at all. Sure. 
it, you know, it's still, I'm still listening to Mick Fleetwood's drums here, you know, yeah. I'm still listening to the guy who created Tusk, you know, and so uh, the fact that the rest of Fleetwood Mac weren't around, like, well, it would have been awesome if they were, but it's still Mick Fleetwood up there playing the drums. Oh, absolutely. I, I would imagine that uh, when you went home that weekend, you did not uh, buy a Mick Fleetwood Zoo album. You probably stuck with the old Fleetwood Mac stuff. Well, <laughs> good point, because that's true. I didn't go out and buy. I didn't go out and buy the Honey Drippers either. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, Mick Fleetwood, when he when I watched the episode that he's on, I don't know. It didn't strike me as like a pop uh, act. It, that, that that struck me as like, oh no, this is just some cool music. Yeah, it isn't necessarily going to be on the radio, but it's you know an established veteran who's very good, and he's doing some new sort of blues rock uh, music. And I yeah. like Saturday Night Live through its history has done that. It's not just pop music. Uh, well, that's a really good point yeah. because I I said earlier that you're always looking for the hot act, but at the same time, uh, it, it does like to experiment experiment with the edges. Who's up and coming? Who who's on the college charts, but not necessarily you know the Billboard top hundred. You know, the, the show is always looking to discover as well, certainly, or to give new opportunities like what we're talking about now to older artists. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, wrap it up the, the second season you were on. Do you have any memories uh, of Huey Lewis or The Cars? Those are two like new wavy bands. that. I yes, have. I do. And what, what, are we a family friendly show? No. <laughs> we can be, but no. Well, well, what I remember of The Cars is Paulina Periscova. Um, oh, hello. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually, that's about the time they met. So I think that she was just coming around in his life at that point. Um, well, I loved the cars. The cars were my walk to uh, Rockefeller Center music from my home. I loved the cars. Drive was constantly playing in my head. So that was a magical experience for me. I don't remember them at the party per se or anything, although I, I do think Rick was there with Polina, as I recall. Um, but Huey Lewis and the news were absolutely fabulous because they were like us more than they were like a musical act. They really were there to hang and have a good time and to party. They took the performance seriously, of course, and they had a string of hits. They were big stars at the time, but they wanted to hang. And so I hung with Huey Lewis at the after party till six in the morning, wow. drinking and hitting on girls together. Excellent. I hope I'm not getting him in trouble if he was married at the time and still married. I don't remember, but we were we were put on the heavy flirt. We were buddies that night, you know, but and only that night. It's like I've never we didn't stay in touch or anything, but that night Huey Lewis and I hung out. Well, that is a that what a what a what a life resume thing right there. Got to be uh, drinking buddies with with Huey. I was drinking buddies with Huey. He took me home in his limousine, and uh, it was uh, you know there are more details to the night that I'm not going to go into. But uh, but Huey was a buddy that night. Well, to your point about him being just kind of one of the guys in that sort yeah. of personality. One thing I noticed about their performance is that of all of the old episodes that I watched. Huey, I think, was the only one that before the end of the musical number introduced everybody in his band before the song ended. Shut up on the keyboards. Mel Gibson on drum. Mario Cipollino on bass. 
Chris Hayes, the kid on guitar. Johnny Cole on guitar and saxophone. My name's Huey Lewis. Great observation. And that really is what I'm trying to explain about his character. He's just, he doesn't, it's Huey Lewis in the news, but I think he didn't like getting all the attention because he knew, hey, I'm a, I'm a good songwriter and I'm the front man. I have a decent voice, but this band is the news. Right. You know, I'm getting a lot of attention, but boy, I wouldn't be getting this attention if it weren't for these people around me. So he was very, very gracious. You can also tell how much the band enjoyed the, doing the show by whether or not they go to the good nights and whether they get front and center and wave oh. and shake hands and, and chat it up. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to make a note <laughs> watching some of those other episodes. Like, okay, so if the band had a good time, usually they're... Yeah, they, they, they want to be right. Well, they were always thanked, so usually they're there. But you can just tell from their energy vibe if they're excited about it or just another day at the office. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, now, uh, someone we know in common told me that you are a big Beatles guy. <laughs> and we're. And I'm going to ask you more about that in a moment, so put a pin in that. Okay, pin in I, it. My, my question now is, Are are you? is that an extension of being a big 60s British invasion guy? Because the next band I want to ask you about is The Kinks, who was uh, a musical guest in your third season there. Correct. What do you remember about uh, the Davies brothers? I remember they were the Kinks, and they were everything I wanted them to be. Um, I, I am of. I wasn't a British invasion guy. I was a Beatles guy. I was a six-year-old about to turn seven, and my and you know my my favorite music was probably you know Happy Birthday to You or something. Who knows? But then I heard I want to hold your hand, yeah. and immediately those chords just that major key just struck me and enlivened me. And I was, you know, I remember saying to my dad in the back, dad, go back, go back, go back. Cause he was looking for cowboy music or something. And from that moment on, which would be probably January, 1964, um, I was, and have been ever since obsessed with the Beatles and we'll get into my obsession if you want, but the B band in my little boy life of wanting to be a Beatle was not yet the Rolling Stones. It was the Kinks. Oh, wow. The nice. Kinks were the, those of us seven-year-olds at this point who now were serious about becoming the Beatles. We recognized the Kinks and their sound. And I couldn't pro express exactly why but we knew that the kinks were good. So that was our alternative Beatle band. So to meet the Davies brothers and to hear kinks music, um, that was the part, that was Mount Everest. Yeah. You know, that was like, oh my God, I have worshiped you guys since the mid sixties. <laughs> That's even in the eighties, that was, a, you know, that was 20 years of like, from being a little boy to a young man, um, I was just thrilled, just thrilled. Well, I think one of the coolest things about the 80s music scene is that it was very friendly to those legacy artists that yes. gotten, started back in the 60s. And yes. they, the Kinks had a couple of hits through the 80s. Oh, yeah. We, they never became the big out, breakout girls screaming. Well, right. Although that's not true. There were, they, they did get their share of that kind of uh, attention. Yeah. But it was never the phenomenon. What are the kinks having for breakfast? You know, you know, did you cut your hair today? 
Gray Davies, you know, um, it was never a Beatle sort of thing. Yeah. But I never felt that it was a rivalry either. Uh, I, I Obviously, they were both bands were very aware and they made comments. And I know I think it was Ray who didn't like um, um, Revolver or some some Beatle album. He just dressed it down. But I, you know, there's a mutual respect because they came from the same roots. Yeah. And they even created some similar sounds at times, too. And so it, it, the Kinks music enlivened me as a boy. But the Beatles were on another plane for me. Yeah, of course. Well, let's talk about one of those Beatles, because I imagine one of the highlights of your, your SNL career must have been when Ringo uh, hosted Saturday Night Live. Yes. the musical guest. He was the yes. host. Yes. And you're in a couple of sketches with him. Tell me what, whatever you remember about that whole experience about him coming in as the host. All right. Strap in. Are you yeah, ready? I'm locked in. Let's go. Ringo and Barbara went office to office. And my office is covered in Beatle posters. They come in and they sit down and you just put those up there for me, didn't you? And I go, no, Mr. Starkey, I, I didn't. I'm, I'm a huge Beatle fan. And he says, well, what do you want to know? And I go, well, um, what was it like when you were first on Ed Sullivan? Honestly, I asked him that question. Well, you know, I remember the, you know, the curtain was there and we heard the girls screaming and then it opens up and it's all this craziness. And I couldn't tell, you know, where we were in the song. So I'd watch Paul and John and George's ass and watch the butts <laughs> to see where they were so I could keep time with it. But he said it was just crazy. It was just crazy. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I've just gotten Ed Sullivan, that iconic performance from Ringo's perspective. Now, he then says, hang on. Do you have any place for me? Cigarette ashes. And I didn't smoke. So I said, here, take this coffee cup. Oh. And he used it for his cigarette ashes, which I have to this day are Ringo's cigarette ashes. Wow. Oh, there's more. Okay. So, then, <laughs> so then he says, well, do you have any ideas for the show? And I go, well, Mr. Starkey, you know, I'd love to do a thing on a hard day's night where we suddenly, where you leave because somebody hurt your feelings and you leave Rockefeller Center and we can't find you. And then we kick up, dun, 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 we kick up this boy music and you're just walking through New York. You befriend a, you know, a small lad and it's just like a hard day's night and you're arrested and we have to go find you. And that's how the show will start. It was a beautiful idea because it would have been funny but it was it would have been such a a respectful um such a respectful way to introduce Ringo and call back to his debut in a hard day's night and he's all he says now i don't want to do any beatles stuff it's no. a so, boo just deflated the whole idea sure. he ended up doing a beatle thing which i was part of but i didn't like and it was a, a beatles auction and the actual Ringo Starr comes out in his Beatles suit, and nobody's particularly interested. And I bid more money, I think, on Paul McCartney's toothbrush. Yeah. Yes, sir, 65000 Oh, uh, no. Uh, I was wondering about the jacket he's wearing. Yes. Was it by any chance ever worn by Paul? <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't. I'm sorry. Now. And he got laughs, but I always thought that's wrong. Yeah. That's not the way to respect him. Oh, but there's more. We're standing backstage waiting to go on for the sketch, onto the live show. And I'm, it's me and Ringo. 
Me and Ringo. And I don't know how it came up, but he said, you know, my son Zach is a drummer. And I go, yes, I, I know pretty much. I know when Zach was born, Mr. Starkey. Uh, I know all about it. Please don't be frightened, but I know all about your life. And he goes, he's a drummer. And one day he can, comes up to me and he says, hey, Dad, can you do this? And he plays something real fancy with the hi-hat and the, the t floor tom and all of this and funky syncopation. He's just all over the place, right? And I said, no, son, I can't. But can you do this? And he beats out a time signature with this hand and a different time signature with the other hand simultaneously. Oh, wow. And I thought to myself, that's why you were the drummer for the Beatles. Yes. Because you could instinctively feel the time signature, where it had to go, when it changed. You only played enough to service the song. That's why you were the drummer for the Beatles. Yeah. You know, it's funny that I just watched a video where they were they were talking about how Ringo has his whole career, you know, he, he sort of like that Joe Piscopo thing you're talking about, where if, if you're talking about the Beatles, you know, it's like, oh, and Ringo, too, I guess. But I think part of that was because he was, he seemed to be an awfully good sport about that kind of thing when he could have gotten, frankly, offended. I, I watched the, uh, the the auction sketch and he seemed to to play along and, and not be too upset by the premise at all. He, he, he loved it. Yeah. He loved it. I thought it was contrary to what he had told me, sure. which was so, but maybe he just didn't want to be so bow down beetle, you oh. know, godlike like I am. And he wanted to just put a pin in it. And yeah. obviously that's what he did. He put a pin in it and it was funny, but yeah, but he was the drummer for the Beatles. You know, he never pretended to be a songwriter. You know, he called the other three guys the writers. Oh. <laughs> that was his name for his three friends, the writers. You know, yeah. they would come in with stuff. And and he, he, he did his part perfectly. Yeah. Well, let's talk about a, another big name from a, a slightly different era. We've talked about him a little bit before. But, uh, Robert Plant and the Honey Drippers came on for like a Christmas show. It was like right before. Yeah. And that was kind of like Mick Fleetwood in the zoo where they were kind of playing like these old blues songs. Yeah. And I noticed there was like a big band. There was a big group of people. Can you tell me mm -hmm. about what was the whole scenario around uh, Robert Plant? Well, uh, you, you know, it's interesting because I don't remember. I mean, I remember Robert Plant because it was Robert Plant. I remember thinking, well, Robert is middle-aged now. He doesn't look like that live poster boy that every girl that I went to high school with had on their wall, but it still was this tall, handsome man with an incredible voice, incredible musical instincts. And a um, pardon? And now a mullet. Yeah, now a mullet, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, I was enamored with the fact that it was Robert Plant. I remember him, again, more at the after party than I do the performance. Okay. Uh, anything you can share from the after party? Um, no, <laughs> he says with a sly smile, I can't, I can't. Okay. Let's just say Robert likes women and women like him. Yeah, 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 enough said, I believe that. Um, <laughs> okay, well, someone, uh, actually someone to bring up that's, that's fairly relevant because unfortunately she passed just a couple of weeks ago was Tina Turner. Tina yes. Turner played in February 1985. And I don't know if she was the only one during your years to play three songs. But yeah, she... I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. 
had three numbers off of her big comeback album. Yep. I, I recently rewatched the documentary about her. Uh, my girlfriend and I went to Chicago to see the the off Broadway show about her. That is just absolutely fantastic. I, I've talked to a lot of people about her music. I've been re you know exploring her discography. Truly, someone special in yeah. in the grand scheme of of American music. So, did she have that reputation already when she came to the show? Because that's at the very start of her comeback. It's start of her comeback, but you know, but again, she was iconic. You know, the Icantina Review. Um, my buddies and I would love to watch them on shows like the Midnight Special, and we just loved her because of this energy and the way she wore that short dress and moved her legs and in those high heels and strutted around the microphone. She was just like for a young. For a young man, it was like, oh, my God, that is sex personified. Yeah. And it, I don't mean to just put it in a sexual context, but it was the music, too. It was just like, I'm feeling things I've never felt before, Dave. How about you? You know, and that was Tina Turner. But for whatever reason, as many acts have their moment in the sun and then it more or less fades away, obviously there was turmoil in her life. And she kind of went away. And then was this resurrection. Just Tina Turner. Ike's out of the picture. It's just Tina. Hit song. Magnificent. She is loving the attention being given to her again. She's on every show and talk show. And she's just got that smile and that radiance. And so when she did the show, I remember hoping, oh, I hope you're really Tina Turner, and that's just not something that you turn on, yeah. but you are this beautiful, radiant person. And yes, she was this beautiful, radiant person. And we even put her in a sketch with Ed Grimley. Yes. And very rarely do the musical artists get so involved. Sometimes James Taylor played an extra in a sketch in uh, another year, but Tina Turner really got involved and the audience, it was a love affair because you could tell that Tina loved her audience and the audience reflected that love. And so you just, you're a sandwich, you're in a love sandwich between Tina and the audience. And it was just magical, just magical. Oh, I imagine. And her dancing with Ed Grimley at the end of that sketch. That's, yeah. Oh. How funny. How funny was that? And, and, and what it was, was commitment. She didn't phone it in. She didn't just do a half-ass job of what, you know, how Tina Turner moves. She did it. Oh, very good. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, it's, it, it, those are, that's a great story to hear because, again, I just think she was truly something special, like the elite yeah. of the elite. Uh, the I love to be able to tell, I love, if, if I may, I love to ahead. be able to tell people that what they wanted to be true is true. You know, there are some snakes in the business and some people oh, yeah. who are disappointing and things, but those cases where people are absolutely who you hoped they would be, it's so special. And so it's such a lovely thing to be able to share with someone. Yep. That's who you wanted her to be. That's who you wanted Huey to be. That's who they are. That's been kind of a common thread through this conversation so far. So I got to say, you are making me very happy about a lot of my favorite bands right now. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that. Uh, one last band I want to ask you about. On February 16th, the only appearance of the original lineup of the Power Station. Oh, yeah. There you go. There's another one. Robert yep. Palmer, the, the, the Taylors from Duran Duran. And Taylors. 
I think his name is Tony Thompson on drums, great drummer. Well, that's a special performance because Palmer jumped out of that band real quick right after that, yep. even though they had booked a tour, and they right. played Live Aid without him. Right. Um, what, what do you remember about uh, the Power Station? Well, I, I remember that it being such a powerful lineup. I mean, again, I watched the rehearsals because I, I'm looking at Robert Palmer. I'm looking at, uh, at um, Mick, Ta not Mick Taylor. Um, John Taylor. John Taylor. And, and, and he, he was as tall and handsome as all the girls wanted him to be and playing his bass. And, 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 and they all had a swagger to them and musically played very well together. Uh, can you remind me of the songs they played? They played... Um, some like it hot and get it on bang a gun. Yeah, some like it hot. Of course, is it was Palmer's and it was really well done. I remember a lot of people, like Chris Guest, making fun of the fact that they did bang a gong. Oh, I remember he he went like, why would a group like this with this musical talent do such a has been easy song like bang a gong? I loved it. But I've always remembered Chris saying, oh, bang a gong, seriously? Oh, that's interesting. Because from what I know about the power station, when they did that bit in the studio, bang a gong, yeah. they, they felt they gelled so well together that instead of it being a one-off single, they were going to do a full album. Oh, I agree with their assessment. I yeah. thought it was wonderful. And I thought they were tight. It, it, the experience was, okay, you have these disparate musicians, and except for the tailors who knew each other so well, you yeah. had a, a lot of new musicians playing together. But because they were all at the top of their game, there was absolutely a musical conversation going on up there. So I love Bangagong, but I recall, after thinking it was so great, that one of my idols, Chris, sure. going, oh, please, Bangagong, seriously? Wow, I, I would not... Uh... Hey, I, I, I love Chris Cassidy. I don't think he's wrong often, but I don't think he read that one right. <laughs> See, he's wrong on that one. All right. Yes, and maybe I read Chris wrong. Maybe he was going bang a gong. Well, no, I remember an eye roll. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one last thing about your run on Saturday Night Live. This is more of a compliment than a question. In the episode that is hosted by uh, Mr. T and Hulk Hogan, which yeah. I just want to ask about that all day, but you do a sketch... The first sketch of that is Billy Crystal as Prince doing a oh, yeah. world thing. Your impression of Bruce Springsteen is, I mean, so Not bad, right? Perfect. <laughs> There's gotta be another way to get on MTV. We are the world. We are. Thank you for that, because no one had done Bruce Springsteen up to that point. There weren't Springsteen imitators. And, and Bruce Springsteen himself was not doing television at that time. He'd be asked to do SNL and say, no, 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 the, too commercial. There's a guy that would say, no, I'm not getting involved in that crap. And, and so he was very elusive, and you weren't seeing imitations of him or anything like that. Jim Belushi really felt that he should be doing that. Ooh, okay. But he couldn't sing it. He couldn't sing it. So I went in, we are the enemy, jaw sticking out and all of that, and nailed it. I am also the world. We are all the children. And I looked enough like him with the yeah. leather jacket and, and the hair that, that I was able to do it. But I remember Jim resenting me for that. Oh, I don't know that he ever forgave me, to be honest oh. with you. <laughs> Because he played like Willie Nelson, I think, or something like that. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and I don't think he was pleased. Well, it's funny to me because that We Are the World song, and I don't know if you guys felt like this at the time, but in hindsight, I love Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen, to me, is probably akin to the Beatles to you, right? Absolutely but, get it. Absolutely. When Springsteen is on that We Are the World song, it's ridiculous. That, that whole song is ridiculous, but him in particular. <laughs> well, so again, to know that you have that impression makes me very happy. I'm glad. So bless your heart. You're right, though. But it was unique to the 80s yeah. because everybody was experimenting a bit outside of their element. You know, remember video MTV was still very new. Yeah. You know, images, little movies around your song and all of this was very, very new. So even though it is one corny, corny song, it was the magical kind of thing that artists were doing in the mid-80s, you know, coming together, and, and for a good cause, obviously, sure. yeah. you know. Um, it was the beginning of all of that, and I think everybody kind of looks at it now the way you are and I do now. It's like, oh, my God, that was ridiculous. So real quick, tell me a little bit about your Beatles collection. How did you, so obviously you were inspired as the by the Beatles as a kid. That yes. random stayed with you. When did it get to the point where you wanted to start collecting some memorabilia? Well, I, you know, I, I it never was a point that began. It never it never ended. As soon oh. as I was a Beatle fan, I got Beatle boots and a Beatle wig. <laughs> um, and I got every album. And then when we found out that the EPs are different in, you know, in England than the LPs are here through Capitol. Well, I've got to get the original Revolver and the original, you know, Beatles for Sale and all that. Because even all my old Capitol, th these are ripoffs of of the the British releases. You know, of just uh, they put uh, they take snippets out of a British released album and then create a new album with the, the songs that they left off. Right? right. So then they created. The Beatles did Yesterday and Today. They never made Yesterday and Today, but they released it as a Capitol album. So the Beatles sent them a picture for the album that you probably know about called the Butcher Cover. Mm -hmm. And the Butcher Cover is pieces of meat and dismembered dolls. And from what I understand, they were saying, you butcher our albums, here's your cover. Oh. And Capitol went, well, there's our Beatle cover. And then when they figured out the joke was on them, they recalled them and issued the nice cute picture and they pasted over some of the old ones and then sent them out again. I have one of the pasted over butcher covers. Whoa. And that is, that is the Holy grail of beetle collectibles. And I have found it a garage sale yesterday oh. and today. And I can see the shadow of the original picture coming through. So immediately I investigated, you do not want to take that off. Right. You, even though I would have a butcher cover, you want to leave that on because that's what the collectors are looking for. Wow. And so I could probably put a kid through college with this thing. But again, like my Ringo Ashes, <laughs> not for sale. Absolutely. Not for sale. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. It, it, you know, that's the fun thing about fandom is like collecting this stuff, uh, you know, definitely, you know, brings some joy. They're great things to talk about. And, you know, I bet you weren't the first person at that garage sale to notice that album. Someone probably walked by and probably go, oh, be that old Beatles album. That's not yeah. even one of the better ones yet. Of course. So for 25 cents, I have oh. a butcher cover. And I've got a framed, 
a picture of Ringo and he signed it to Gary best wishes, which I like to point out to people. He didn't just say Ringo wishes best wishes. Yes. He wished me the very best of wishes. So I feel a kinship with the star man. Absolutely. And now I know what to say to you when we're signing off here. <laughs> best, best wishes. <laughs> okay. Well, before we got out of here, let's talk a little bit about the show you do with Kenny, the Gary and Kenny show, which is available on all podcast platforms. You do a video YouTube on YouTube, which is great. I've watched uh, a number of episodes. I enjoy the show. But uh, tell us, uh, you know, tell everybody watching what, a little bit about what you and Kenny do on the show. Well, well, uh, and I want to plug with DBA, uh, DBTV. DBTV is the streaming service that we use uh, through Roku um, so that we have visual as well as the YouTube, but on all the popular podcasts. Kenny and I have known each other for, I don't know, 30 years. And we're, we're both semi-retired and we kind of, oh, let's do a podcast because everyone's doing them. What will we do? Well, we know people in show business, so let's call up our friends. But most of our friends, you know, it, it's hard to book A-listers, even if you know them. But, you know, we've had Richard Kind and we've had, you know, uh, lots of major producers. Um, Brad Hall's done the show. Tim Kazarinski's done the show. Yep. Um, but it's people who are really interesting. You know, writers are interesting. Comedians are interesting. Producers have an interesting story to tell that's a bigger picture than most actors have to tell about, well, this is how I grew up and this is why I'm so famous. They tell the stories about the nuts and bolts. Well, that's the original premise, but it's evolved into what, as you know, every show evolves into what people like. And what they like more than anything are me and Kenny, a couple of guys in our 60s, just bitching about whatever. Politics, our bladder, you know, whatever. The trials and tribulations of family life, you know, fixing the pool, the gutters. And so we go in with no script and we still bring on guests. It's great to have comedians or anybody that people know. And we talk about them and their careers. But we ask them, we invite them into the conversation. If they're talking about, you know, their, their, their recent hernia surgery, let's, let's find some ways to make that funny. So they sort of like the, it's, it's a show about our chemistry. Cause Kenny and I, if you watch the show are very different. Oh, sure. Kenny's, Kenny's really pretty silly and off. He, he spins out of orbit a little bit. And I, I have some gravity to where I'm always trying to bring him back. And I think that's the show now is the curiosity of how we're going to get through the half hour or the hour and, <laughs> and make it work. My favorite episode that you guys did was when you hosted an interview with James Rolfe, who's famous for the angry video game nerd. Yes. Now, uh, I don't know if you can tell, but as a nerd myself, like <laughs> he is basically the guy, like I saw him doing his show like 15 years ago and he was literally the guy that gave me the idea that I should try something. Really? Yeah. So well, he's, you know, he's the only show that my kid watched. Oh. You know, <laughs> I've got children and they don't watch my podcast. But when James did the show, of course they watched. Yeah. And it was our only show that actually went through the roof in terms of viewers. Because he has a following. He's yeah, a he was guy. a special guy and down to earth, humble. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a really enjoyable conversation. Generous. He was out of character. You know, he does his Yeah, yeah, like, right. You guys, he was just being... Yeah, and that's what was fun about it. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank okay. you.
Well, yeah, well done with that. Well, what do you have coming up on the show? Can you give a tease of what's coming down the pipe? Well, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I don't know. I, we're like a week behind. We did a Father's Day show. We did a show with Laura Foy, who is oh, a, yeah. a producer friend of ours who lives in Florida. And she is a gay woman living in Florida. So we call that behind enemy lines. And I think that's posting right now. Yeah. Um, we've got a couple of shows coming up, but I'm not sure when... I'm not sure when or who we're going to book on those. There's a few names out there in the hopper. But when we can't get schedules to mash up, then Kenny and I just said, ah, let's just wing it. Let's just yeah. let's talk about our, our fingernails. Let's talk about toe jam, whatever comes up. <laughs> well, excellent. I got to say, Gary, this has been an absolute blast of a conversation. Enjoy. I really appreciate your memories and stories. Uh, it's been hilarious. And it's so interesting to me to – you know, go back through this because this is like this is rock history. You know, Queen, yeah. their last performance in America, or the Power Station's only performance with that lineup. Tina yeah. Turner on her comeback. You witnessed some real oh. historical moments in rock history. I never forget that. Yeah, and it, it's great to hear your side of it here today. So thank you so much for coming by, man. This well, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it, and I love the fact that you, your show is about music, and even with the SNL thread in my life we talked about the musical threads which most people don't ask me about oh yeah you know like how did you get started and who's your favorite guest host but the musical not always so this was a lot of fun hey thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime number one listen to the show if you're hearing this now that means you did this part already thank you there is an infinite amount of content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in Facebook groups, subreddits, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockNRoll. Lots of great material like photos and vlogs on all three platforms. As Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal. Not just because it affects the algorithm, but also because it gives me something I can point to when pitching this show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chance I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 